we are going to talk about what do death, glorification, and union with Christ entail. So we're going to try to cover all three topics today. And we're going to answer questions like, why do Christians die? What happens to our bodies and souls when we die? When will we receive our resurrected bodies? What will they be like? And then what does it mean to be united with Christ theologically? So those are the things we will cover during our time today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that with you we do not need to fear death. That death is just a transition we have in order to be with you face to face, to have complete joy, complete peace, complete healing, Lord. And so I just pray that as we talk about this, that it will help us to not fear death, but it would also help us to remember that every single person will die at some point. And it reminds us again our need to share the gospel with people so that they could have eternal security with you, Lord. So help encourage us today, but also help convict us today to want to share Jesus with others. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first question is, why do Christians die? Because we know Christians die, and we should not view death for Christians as any sort of punishment from God. It's not a penalty for our sins. Though the penalty for sin is death, that penalty no longer applies to us. Because of what Christ did on the cross, all of it has been paid for. So we want to think about, well, what is the reason then that Christians still die if death has been conquered? Death is the final outcome of living in the fallen world. It is not because we have sinned. It is because we live in a fallen world. Even though God has conquered death, and one day we will too, God has chosen to apply the benefits of salvation to us gradually over time. He also has not chosen to remove all evil from the world immediately, but to wait until the final judgment and the establishment of a new heaven and earth. So in short, we still live in a fallen world, and our experience of salvation is still incomplete. The last aspect of the fallen world to be removed will be death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So God uses the experience of death to actually complete our sanctification. When we experience pain and suffering in this life, it should not be seen as God punishing us. Sometimes suffering is a result of living in a sinful, fallen world. And sometimes it is God disciplining us for our good. We can hold on to Romans 8.28, which says, For those who love God, all things work together for good, even the pain and suffering, for those who are called according to his purpose. Suffering allows God to strengthen us so that we might gain a greater ability to trust God and resist sin in the challenging path of obedience. Therefore, we should see all the hardship and suffering that comes to us in life as something that God brings to us to do us good, to strengthen our trust in him and our obedience, and ultimately increase our ability to glorify him. Death is something that God brings us through. I want you to think of it. It's not just something that happens to you. Death is something that God brings us through to make us more like Christ. Ultimately, death is not natural, it is an enemy, 
but it is something Christ will finally destroy. If we are faithful, then death actually leads to a reward. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Isn't that beautiful? Our experience of death completes our union with Christ. We will fully be unified with Christ in our death. We cannot be with him face to face until we go through death and enter eternal life. Through death, we also imitate Christ and what he did. And so therefore, we will experience a closer union with him because just as he died, we too will experience death. Paul says we are fellow heirs with Christ. And then he says in Romans 8, 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. To be glorified, we need to experience the suffering. Our obedience to God is more important than preserving our own lives, than trying to not have death happen. The world's goal of preserving one's life at all costs is not the highest goal for a Christian. Obedience to God and faithfulness to him in every circumstance is far more important. Paul told the Ephesian elders, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul could say at the end of his life this, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is what we want to say about our lives when we go through the experience of death. So how should we think of our own death and the death of others? Well, the New Testament encourages us to think of our own death, not with fear, but with joy at going to be with Christ. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from this body and be at home with the Lord. This shows there will be a separation of our body when we will be with the Lord, at least at first. He also says in Philippians 1, 21 and 23, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We need to get there. We need to get there and not say we love our life so much that we'd rather be here than be with Christ. How do we get there? How do we get to love Christ that much, to long for Christ that much? Through prayer, through being in the word, through sharing Jesus with others, you fall more in love with him and you grasp that heaven is better. Romans 8.38 promises that not even death will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, when other friends or family die, we will experience genuine sorrow. Like Jesus did when his friend Lazarus died. He wept. If they were believers, your friends or family that pass. It should be mixed with joy that they have gone to be with the Lord. 
The very existence of death should grieve us deeply because it is unnatural and ought not to exist in the world created by God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that they can grieve, but you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We can gain encouragement from Psalm 116.15, which says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And any follower of Jesus is a saint. Doesn't mean just the saints of the Catholic Church. Mourning should be mixed with worship. When we mourn, we still need to choose to worship God and not run from him when death is right near us and our loved ones. David and Job both worshiped through their time of grieving. When David's child died, he washed himself, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and then he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped in 2 Samuel 12, 20. And then when Job heard the death of his 10 children, he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, which is a symbol of mourning, but then he fell on the ground and he worshiped God after all of his children were killed. Job 1, 20. So how are we to respond, though, when someone that does not know Christ dies? That is the real grievous one. This sorrow is very deep, very real, especially if we know they actually rejected Jesus in their lifetime. Paul himself, when he was thinking about some of his Jewish brothers who had rejected Christ, here's what he said. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's Romans 9, 1 through 3. He would rather be put in separation from God for all eternity than for the ones he loved to experience separation from God. Yet we never know with certainty that a person persisted in refusing Christ all the way to the point of death. This is our one glimmer of hope. The knowledge of one's impending death often will bring about genuine heart-searching on the part of the dying person, and sometimes words of scripture or a Christian testimony that they've heard in the past will be recalled to their mind, and the person might come to genuine repentance and faith. In some cases, we simply just do not know. Nevertheless, after a non-Christian has died, it would be wrong to give any indication to others that we think the person has gone to heaven. We want to be careful of that. It's often very helpful in these circumstances to speak with genuine thankfulness about the good qualities we noticed in them and have been encouraged by their life and focus on the good life that they did live versus where they are maybe now in eternity. So what happens when people die? What does the Bible say about this? Well, the souls of believers go immediately into God's presence, immediately. Death is a temporary cessation of bodily life. We will not have our bodies, and it will be a separation of the soul from the body. Once a believer has died, though their physical body remains on earth, 
at the moment of death, the soul, or as we learned, the soul or the spirit, same thing, of the believer goes immediately into the presence of God with rejoicing. Jesus said to the thief on the cross right next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Hebrews 12, 23 says that when Christians come together to worship, they come not only into the presence of God in heaven, but also in the presence of spirits of the righteous made perfect. So that shows again that sanctification of our spirits. Our souls are made perfect immediately in heaven and we will be worshiping the Lord in heaven as souls, as spirits at first. God will not leave our dead bodies in the earth forever. For when Christ returns at his second coming, the souls of believers will be reunited with their bodies. Their bodies will be raised from the dead and they will live with Christ eternally. So some people have asked, if our body will be resurrected, must we have a actual burial or are we allowed to be cremated? People have asked this in the church. Well, what was Adam made out of? Was he not made out of dust? Cannot God recreate exactly who you are out of dust? What about all the martyrs who were killed and burned at the stake, but yet we know they will receive a crown in heaven for their martyrdom? Will they not receive their bodies again, but glorified? So you do not need to stress over, oh, they were cremated, or their ashes were put all over this beautiful lake, how could God possibly put that person back together again? He is God, right? And so you do not need to worry about if you choose to be cremated or not. Now, an important thing to discuss, especially if people were from Catholic backgrounds, is we do not go to purgatory, as the Catholics would believe. Since believers' soul go immediately into God's presence, there cannot be a purgatory. Roman Catholics believe purgatory is a place where the souls of believers go to be further purified from sin until they are ready to be admitted into heaven. This doctrine is not taught anywhere in scripture. It's in the Apocrypha, though, in 2 Maccabees 12, 42 through 45. This literature is not equal in authority to scripture, so this passage should not be taken as authoritative in its doctrine. Also, it contradicts clear statements about departing and being with Christ. So it opposes actual teachings in the New Testament. A more serious problem with this doctrine is that it teaches we must add something to the redemptive work of Christ. So his redemptive work for us was not enough to pay the penalty for our sins. Also, the doctrine of purity robs believers of great comfort that should be theirs in knowing that those who have died have immediately gone into the presence of the Lord and knowing that they also, when they die, will depart and be with Christ. Also, the Bible does not teach this doctrine called soul sleep. You may or may not have heard of this doctrine, this doctrine teaches that when believers die, they go into a state of unconscious existence. And then they are becoming conscious again when Christ returns and raises them to eternal life. So it's as if they are just sleeping unconsciously right now. The Seventh-day Adventists believe this today. 
When scripture represents death as sleep, sleep is simply a metaphorical expression used to indicate that death is only temporary for Christians, just as sleep is temporary. No passage says that the soul of a person sleeping is unconscious, which would be necessary to prove this doctrine of soul sleep. So sleep is a metaphorical expression to teach that death is temporary. Also, we should never pray to the dead. I hear very good-hearted Christians pray for the person that has just died instead of praying for the family. We do not need to pray for the person that just died because whatever we pray is not going to change after they have died. There's no need to do that. But this idea comes again from the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees 12, 42 through 45. It is taught nowhere in the Bible, and there's no indication that this was the practice of any Christians in the time of the New Testament. Further, the souls of perished unbelievers go to a place of punishment and eternal separation from God's presence. It would do no good to pray for them since their final destiny has been settled by their sin and rebellion against God in their life. It's not going to change their destiny for you to pray for them after they've died. So this leads us to talk about the souls of unbelievers and how they immediately go to eternal punishment. Scripture never encourages us to think that people will have a second chance to trust in Christ after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Scripture never represents the final judgment as depending on anything done after we died, but only on what has happened in this life. You can see that in Matthew 25.31-46. through 46. You can see that in Romans 2, 5 through 10. And you can see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Condemnation comes not only because of a willful rejection of Christ, but also because of the sins that we have committed and the rebellion against God that those sins represent. The idea that people have a second chance to accept Christ after death would also destroy motivation for evangelism and missions. The fact that there is eternal conscious punishment for unbelievers after they die is certainly a difficult doctrine to accept and contemplate. But the passages teaching it appear so clear that it seems that we must affirm it if we are to affirm what scripture teaches. Jesus says that one day there will be final judgment. And he says to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 41 and 46. These passages show that we cannot accept a doctrine called annihilation. This is creeping into the evangelical church. The doctrine of annihilation will comfort you to help you feel like, oh, someone will not need to suffer for all eternity. But it's not biblical. It's not faithful to scripture. This doctrine says that unbelievers, either immediately upon death or after suffering for a period of time, will simply cease to exist. That's what annihilate means, right? You, you finish it off. And so it's this idea of they're not going to exist for eternity. There will actually be an end to them. God will, in, in a sense, annihilate them, and they will no longer exist. 
Although the idea might sound attractive to us and it avoids the emotional difficulty connected with affirming eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, such an idea is not affirmed in any passages of scripture and seems so clearly, clearly to be contradicted by those passages that connect eternal blessing of the righteous with eternal punishment of the wicked. Although unbelievers pass into a state of eternal punishment immediately upon death, their bodies will not be raised up again until the final judgment. So again, it's their souls that go in, not a physical body. On that day, their bodies as well will be raised and be reunited with their souls. And that is when they will stand before God's throne for the final judgment to be pronounced upon their body and their soul. You will find evidence of this in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, in John 5, 28 and 29, Acts 24, 15, and Revelation 20, 12 and 15. So let's talk about Old Testament believers. And did they immediately enter into God's presence or not? Some have said that although the souls of believers since Christ's resurrection go immediately into God's presence in heaven, the souls of believers who died before Christ's resurrection did not enjoy the blessings of heaven, but went into a place of waiting for Christ's work of redemption to be completed. Sometimes this is called limbus partum or limbo. They're like in limbo. And this view is common in Lutheran churches as well as Roman Catholic, which makes sense because Lutheranism came right out of Roman Catholic and then came all the other denominations. So it kind of makes sense. So here's the thing, though. Not many scripture references talk about the state of Old Testament believers after they died. There's not a lot of scripture on this. But the scripture that we do have gives us an indication of their state that they are immediately consciously enjoying the presence of God, not in a time of waiting for God's presence. Here's some examples. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. He was immediately in the presence with God. Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11 says that he went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He was immediately with God. David was confident. He said in Psalm 23.6 that he was going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, not go to a waiting area until the Messiah came. Therefore, it seems likely that Old Testament believers also entered immediately into heaven and enjoyed fellowship with God upon their death. So let's switch now and talk a little bit about what is glorification. This is actually when we receive our resurrected bodies. When Christ redeemed us, he did not just redeem our spirits and souls. He redeemed us as a whole person, and that includes the redemption of our bodies. The application of Christ's work of redemption to us will not be complete until our bodies are entirely set free from the effects of the fall and brought into a state of perfection for which God created them. The redemption of our bodies will only occur when Christ returns and raises our bodies from the dead. So right now, we are like Paul, who said that we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 23 through 24. So it is true that when a loved one passes away and they had experienced great pain and suffering, that they are no longer experiencing pain and suffering in heaven. But they have not yet received a new body. 
They are not yet running and jumping and skipping if they used to be lame. They are souls in heaven right now, but will one day still receive their body, still waiting for their body in heaven. Just to give you a picture of how we say things and what reality is in heaven right now. When Paul traces the steps in the application of redemption, the last one he talks about is glorification. Romans 8.30, we've covered this over and over again. It says this, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we know we will get that, that glorified body because we've been justified. So here's an official definition of glorification. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It's your final thing of being redeemed. It will happen when Christ returns, raising from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died, reuniting them with their souls and changing the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. How powerful is that? Everyone, from all time, from Adam till the last person of when Jesus comes back in his second coming, we're all going to get glorified bodies at the exact same time. The whole body of Christ. I mean, that's amazing. Can you imagine the celebration we're going to have? The Christians who are still alive when Christ returns will simply have their bodies instantaneously changed into new, resurrected bodies that can never grow old, woohoo, or weak, woohoo, and can never die. 1 Corinthians 15:51 says this: Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says that the souls of those who have died and gone to be with Christ will come back as souls and be joined with their bodies on that day for Christ will bring them with him says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then he affirms that the dead in Christ will rise first. So the non-believers will not rise at the same time. They will rise, but not at the same time. Not every single soul will rise at the same time to be given their bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This only makes sense if it is the souls of believers who have gone into Christ's presence that will return with him, and if it's their bodies that are being raised from the dead to be joined together with their souls and then ascending to be with Christ. Now, John 5, 28 through 29 says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then Jesus says in John 6, 40, just a chapter later, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 
And then even in the Old Testament, if you go to Job chapter 19, 25, it says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Jesus hasn't even come yet, and Job knows that his Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. The millennium, right? And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Why? Because he doesn't have a body at that moment, and he'll still see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He knows his flesh will die, and yet in the future his flesh will see God. It will be resurrected by the Redeemer. And then Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. And then Daniel prophesizes this in chapter 12 too. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So they knew that they would be resurrected even in the Old Testament. So what will our resurrected bodies be like? Can't wait, right? Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I mean, like his glorious body is going to be our glorious body. What? Our bodies will be like Jesus's resurrected body. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, verse 23, and verse 49. We will be raised imperishable. We cannot die. We will be raised in glory. We will be raised in power. And we will be raised as a spiritual body. But it's still physical. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 says that we will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus we will not wear out. We will not grow old or even be subject to sickness or disease. We will have characteristics of youthfulness, but be mature in our manhood or womanhood forever. When it says that our bodies will be raised in glory, that suggests the beauty our bodies will behold. Glory often represents a bright, shining radiance that surrounds the presence of God. And so it might suggest that there will also be a brightness or radiance surrounding our bodies. Matthew 13, 43 says, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We will shine like the sun. And Daniel says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. So there's no reason in the context of either of these verses to assume it's just metaphor, metaphorical. We will shine. You think about Moses, and when he was in the presence of God, it said when he came down the mountain, his face shone so much, it created such fear in the people that he had to wear a veil over his face after he was done communicating. So we even see a physical example of this in Moses. So when it says that we are raised in power, it doesn't mean that we're going to be like comic heroes, right? And can do anything we want and have superhuman power. But we will be given the strength to do all that we want to do in God's will. We will be able to do anything God wants us to do and to do it perfectly and supremely and amazingly. Now, a spiritual body. It says that we would receive a spiritual body. This does not mean non-physical it's a physical body raised 
to a degree of perfection of what God intended to have a, a spiritually perfect relationship with our creator. People sometimes misinterpret 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. So let me share that with you. It says this, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So some people think you'll never get a physical body in heaven because of that verse. And then Paul says, Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what he means is our present human nature from Adam after the fall. He doesn't mean that we will exist in a non-physical state because the entire heaven and earth will be made new. This will be a new earth that we will live on forever. And so we are going to get to have physical bodies to live on this earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says this, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. A new immortal body. Some passages indicate that Paul expected a considerable measure of continuity between our present earthly bodies and our future resurrected bodies. Paul said, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He says that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And then believers who remain alive on the day that Christ returns, it says that they'll be changed, yet their bodies will not be replaced. So it's not about a replacement, it's about a change. We must also clearly see how Christ's resurrected body, though it differed somewhat from the body he had before he died, that some of the disciples didn't immediately recognize him, right? But then others did. Other disciples were able to notice him quite quickly. Think about it this way. After his resurrection, Jesus had a youthful body. It was not torn down by the beatings he had just three days before. He was youthful in appearance. So the other encouraging thing is people are going to know and recognize people in heaven. You're going to find your loved ones. You're going to recognize them. You're going to know them. Somehow we're going to know who Moses is and Abraham and Ruth and Mary. And we're going to just know who these people are. How? Okay, Elijah, who had been taken up to heaven in his earthly body, was somehow recognizable to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9. Of course, the disciples had never seen Elijah. They had never seen Moses in the flesh. But somehow these men, they just knew who they were when they were on that mountain. And so even if it's someone you've never met that's in the the history of the entire church, we will be able to know who they are and who their name is. Part of glorification is that the entire creation will be renewed as well. So glorification is not just our bodies, it's the earth, okay? Paul says in Romans 8, 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He explains that this will happen when we receive our resurrected bodies. In this renewed creation, there will be no more thorns or thistles, no more floods or droughts, no more earthquakes or tornadoes, no more poisonous snakes. So if you're kind of figuring out the timeline, we go, we're with the Lord. And then when Jesus comes back, he's going to reign and he's going to change the whole earth as well as give us our glorified bodies all at the same time. So we will live on this earth in our glorified bodies. 
So finally, let's talk about what does union with Christ entail? What does that mean theologically in the Bible? Union with Christ is a phrase that we use to summarize several different relationships between us and Christ, through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. So these relationships include these, that we are in Christ, that Christ is in us, that we are like Christ, and that we are with Christ. So we're going to look at these more closely. And a good place to study this is Galatians. Galatians talks a lot in those very few chapters of us being in Christ and Christ being in us. And you could highlight those two different things, Christ in us and us in Christ, and see how Paul explains the differences, that it doesn't mean the exact same thing theologically. So let's look at first how we are in Christ, right? This is the example I used a few weeks ago of like, that's if we're wearing a sumo wrestler outfit and we're protected inside of it because we're inside of all who Christ is, his perfect life, his righteousness, the, the death he died for us protects us from so many things because we are inside Christ. We are protected. This means whatever Christ did on earth as our representative, God counted it as being something we did too. When Jesus lived a perfect life, his entire life, God sees us as having lived a perfect life. Because God thinks of us as being in Christ he can think of our sins as belonging to Christ. And these sins we have not yet even committed. God knew about them, but yet he saw them as belonging to Christ and not us. When Christ died, God thought of us as having died, and our old self was crucified with him. God thinks of us as having been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and taken up to heaven with Christ. It says we're seated with him at the right hand of God. I don't really feel that all the time, do you? I don't feel like I'm seated at the right hand of God. But yet that is a positional truth because we are in Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus now can have real effect on our lives because we are in Christ. It's as if the Holy Spirit reproduces Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives when we believe in Christ. Because we've died and risen with Christ, we have power to overcome personal sin. Sin is defeated. We've become a new creation already. Isn't that crazy? We're internally a new creation, even though one day we will be fully glorified and perfect. Even now we are a new creation. Since every spiritual blessing was earned by him and belongs to Jesus, the New Testament says that these blessings are ours when we identify as being in him. 1 John 5.11 says that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Again, we are in Christ, and that's how we have eternal life. Every stage of application of redemption is given to us because we are in Christ. We are deemed because we are in Christ. In Christ, we are called to salvation. We are regenerated and justified. We die and will be raised up. To be in Christ is to be in this new realm that Christ controls. This means every action in our lives can be done in Christ. Paul spoke truth in Christ. He was proud of his work in Christ. And he can do all things through Christ who gave him strength. Our whole world changes when we see ourselves as being in Christ. In Christ, our labor is not in vain, even if no one else sees what we do. 
In Christ, we can be strong. We can be encouraged. We can rejoice. We can stand firm. We can live a godly life. That is the power of being in Christ. But now what about how Christ is in us? It's a different term. John 15, 5 says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We are not just in Christ, but Christ is in us to give us the power to live the Christian life. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you ever experience that where you're like, wow, that wasn't me. That had to be God. There's a real personal dwelling of Christ in us. Even if he is still seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he's omnipresent. Even though he has a physical body, somehow he is still everywhere all the time. Next, we are like Christ. We become like Christ. Our character changes to be like Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, I don't have enough nerve to say that to you. Be imitators of Holly as I am of Christ. I couldn't say that. Paul was able to say that. But he must have really felt like he was truly, deeply walking with Jesus. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's our character, right? Our, our obedience. The New Testament pictures the Christian life as one of striving to imitate Christ in all of our actions. And this is especially true in our suffering. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps, and we will suffer on this earth. And Romans 8.17 says, We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. When we act like Christ, we become like Christ. Next, we are with Christ. There's fellowship with Christ. We can have a personal relationship with Jesus. He says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is speaking of his divine nature being present with us. We know him and we are comforted by him. It says that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. We are taught by him, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. And we live our lives in his presence, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 10. To become a Christian is to be called into fellowship, relationship with God's son, Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 9. In all our prayers now, we are heard by Jesus and we have fellowship with him, right? And that's why we say, in Jesus' name we pray. He is our great high priest who has entered into heaven itself and now appears in the presence of God on our behalf, behalf interceding for us. And then finally, we are also brought into union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's not just that we are in Christ or that Christ is in us or that we have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with the entire Trinity. We are in the Father, according to John 17, 21. We are in the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, 9. It says the Father is actually in us, according to John 14, 23. And it says the Holy Spirit is in us, in Romans 8, 9, and 11. It says that we can become like the Father in Matthew 5, 44, and we can become like the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 4. We have fellowship with the Father, 1 John 1, 3, and we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 16. 
So you're seeing that we can have all of these relational components with the entire Trinity. But now in an eternity, we relate to the Father in his distinct role. He is the Heavenly Father, and the Son is our Savior and Lord, and the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us, guides us, purifies us, and helps us to apply salvation to our life. So we engage with all of them, but they have different roles in our life. So as we close this lesson, as we think about death and glorification and union with Christ, I hope that we will just be so excited to get to know him even more because we will have all eternity with him and that we will not be ashamed to share Jesus with others because he is what makes our life so incredible. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that one day we can look forward to not just being with you face to face, but to have a glorified body living in a new heaven, a new earth, Lord, where we can worship you, where we can meet people and loved ones, maybe even people that we've never officially met, but we can't wait to meet. Thank you, Lord, that this gives us hope that we can go through death with you, that this is part of our sanctification, that Jesus, even you experienced death. And so, Lord, help us to not fear that, in fact, help us to just be so excited to see you and to be with you for all of eternity, Lord. Please give us wisdom who to continue to pray for, who to continue to share Jesus with, so that we will never have any regrets if someone we know passes away. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.